You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Jeff, thanks uh, for telling us all those uh, facts and um, in the before you're out here, when you leave, um, Jeff, I can't remember if you said it or not, but the Grishams, who lead a ministry here at Bethel called Grafted, um, will be out in the foyer. And you have an opportunity uh, to stop and talk with them and find out just more information. Here's what I want to make sure you know. This is not an emotional appeal. This is not a... Um, there's no play on emotions. Really what we want to do is we want to alert you of the facts, let you know what the need is. And they really would like to ask you to pray about it. Maybe you haven't prayed about something like that ever. That, God, would you want me to, to do that? Would you want me to step in and be a part of uh, a season in a family's life or a child's life with whatever you might do with that? And I just want to encourage you to pray about it. So if you've never prayed about it, just ask the Lord if that's something He would lead you to do. I don't want you to do it because you uh, feel pity or that you feel emotional about it, I would want you to do it because you feel that the Lord is leading you to do that. And if nothing else, um, that he'd lead, you stop by and find out just exactly what we're talking about. I think a lot of folks don't fully understand um, what the needs are and how the needs are met. And so it may be just an opportunity for you this morning to explore what that actually looks like and how you might interface. And at the very least, uh, Philip and Shailene Grisham, who lead this ministry, uh, they could use any help that you could provide them. They um, lead a ministry that uh, impacts a lot of families here at this church and a lot of families at other churches in this community. And they certainly could um, have folks come alongside them and help hold up their hands in the midst of what God's called them to do. So would you, would you pray about that um, with us as a church? All right. What's well, a fitting morning then, because we're going to talk about Ruth. And so if you turn over to Ruth, um, that's where we're going to be this morning. As you're turning there, is Skyler still in the house? Uh, Skyler. So he got a call this morning. Todd blew out his vocal something yesterday. Um, he was gonna, I was going to lead worship, but it, it didn't work out for me. Um, but Skylar got the call this morning that said, hey man, I can't do it. Can you do it? And listen, this is a hard gig to just step up and do, all right? And he did it. It was, it was wonderful. I think we um, were real blessed by Skylar being here. And Jeff, I don't think it was worship songs they were singing at the prison. Um, it's just my guess. So... Uh, I think it blew out on some song called Superstition, so. I mean, not that that needs to go out on Twitter at Todd Wright Band uh, Twitter, but whatever. I mean, do, do whatever you feel like you need to do on that. Um, all right, so, so uh, Ruth. Uh, uh, listen, I, I don't know any other way to do this. I, I have to preach the whole book of Ruth. I, I tried to figure out, okay, where am I going to jump in and jump out of? Not. I'm going to preach the whole book. So we got time. Cowboys don't play till 7.30 tonight. We're golden, all right? So Ruth, the book of Ruth, chapter 1. So uh, just to relieve your fears, we're going to look at chapter 1. We're going to look at chapter 4. I'll summarize the chapters in the middle. But book, Ruth comes right after Judges. The reason it comes right after Judges is you find out at the very beginning that Ruth takes place during the time of the Judges. And the time of the Judges is this really dark period of history in Israel's life. So Israel, you know, the nation of Israel, they're led out of Egypt, um, led out of slavery by Moses, the great exodus, the great redemption. They wander in the wilderness 40 years. The next generation under Joshua's leadership gets to go into the promised land. And they go in, and the book of Joshua is all about how they go in and they conquer the promised land. Some tribes did better than other tribes, but they go in, and it's 40 years of conquest. But what we find out is that at the end of Joshua, moving into Judges, that after a generation in the promised land, God's people forgot him. And they began to worship the idols in the land that were there before they got there. And so the book of 
Judges takes place, it, is, it records a period of time from about 300 to 350 years, and it ends uh, when Samuel comes on the scene and Saul becomes the king, and ultimately David ends up becoming the king. So that's the period of time that we're talking about that Ruth takes place in the middle of, one of the darkest hours, seasons of Israel's history. But the beautiful thing about Ruth is that while the judges record that God, every generation, raises up a judge, his people are in need, they cry out, and God's grace, he raises up a judge, and the, and the judge leads either the tribe or, or part of the nation, the book of Ruth brings us all the way down past the nation, past a tribe, into a family that's from Bethlehem. And we are going to get to focus our lens on a single family and what God does and how he provides for them in the middle of these dark moments in Israel's history. So, that, so that's, that's the setup. We're going to go, I want you to look at Ruth chapter 1, and I'm going to walk uh, through. I'm going to read the first five verses to begin with, and then we'll, we'll see where we go from there. It goes like this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So Moab is across the Dead Sea. It's the other side of the Dead Sea. There's these mountain ranges. There's Moab. Deuteronomy tells the Israelites, don't have anything to do with the Moabites. They got a bad history. They are the um, sons of the incestual relationship with Lot and his daughters. That's Moab. A scandalous place. It tells us that the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. And they were the Ephraimites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These two Moabite wives, uh, these these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Well, the scene opens up. Listen, that's just the first five verses of Ruth. What happens is the scene opens up and there's this big word that stands there at the beginning and it's famine. And it may be that this famine is a judgment on Israel that God had promised back in Deuteronomy 28 and it's, and it's affecting the nation of Israel. And so this family in Bethlehem, in Judah, is feeling this, this judgment on the nation, this famine. You, you move from this famine, this big word famine, to there's this big move where they go from Bethlehem, which Bethlehem means, by the way, house of bread. They leave there during the famine to go to Moab, the place they're not supposed to go. The narrator makes no judgment about that, but you're left to decide if they are in God's will or not. And then there's the bad fact Elimelech, the, the husband, the one that led them there in verse 3, he dies. So now, in three verses, we have one death, one widow, and two sons. And then verses 4 and 5, we read that there's two marriages, there's ten years, there's two more deaths, and so there's three total losses. If you were going to sum up, do the math of those five verses, here's what you have. One famine, three deaths, Three widows, ten years, five verses. That's the opening of the book of Ruth. And it is, it's, it's startling. It's sobering. It's instructive to us, isn't it? I mean, isn't, isn't it right? Life can fall apart in five verses, can't it? I mean, do you know this? I mean, your life can go from, hey man, we live in the house of bread to famine, to some kind of covenant disobedience, to, to death, to now all that Naomi is left with is two foreign 
daughter-in-laws in a foreign land. That's where she is. See, the author, he wants us to feel right here in the beginning the desperation of Naomi. I mean, she, she has nothing. She has lost everything. Naomi and her, and her husband, Elimelech, I, I am of the opinion they were born during some bright spot in the midst of the judges. The reason is because Elimelech's name means God is king, and Naomi's name means pleasant. And so about the time they were born, it must have been a high water mark during the time of the judges and their parents under enthusiasm named them. God is king and pleasant. But by the time they meet, they marry, and they begin to have children, the, the, the climate has changed because Malon means weak and Chilion means fading. The days are dark. The, the families if you will, it's kind of a microcosm of the nation. It's actually a microcosm of all humanity. Right? Well, in verse 6, look at verse 6. It says this, Then she arose, this is Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So verse 6, she's in the fields of Moab, and she hears. She's hearing that the Lord's provided, and the Hebrew word there is lahem. He's provided lahem, so she packs up her things to go back to Bethlehem. That's where she's going to go. And along the way, chapter 1, it records that there's this conversation that she has with the daughter-in-laws, and she's going to discourage them to come with her. She's going to say, look, I don't have anything to offer you. Here's what I want you to do. Your best prospect at life here. Your, your widows, you haven't had any children in 10 years, your, parents, your best prospects. Go back to your people, look for a husband there. That's the best chance you have, because if you come with me, I have nothing to offer you. In fact, in verse 8 and 9, what she does is she prays for these daughter-in-laws. She, she prays to, to God. You'll notice how it's written in your Old Testament Bible. It's, it's the all-caps Lord. It means Yahweh. That's the covenant God of Israel. She prays for them to the covenant God of Israel that he would do two things, that he would deal kindly with them and he would grant them rest. Kindly is this word called hesed. It means faithful covenant love. And rest is this word that, that means to, to find stability and security and salvation. But what Naomi's going to do is she's going to pray to God that he would grant this, yet she's going to send these daughter-in-laws back to their pagan gods to have the request met. See, Naomi looks at her life and she doesn't see God's faithful love. She does not see security in her future. In fact, from what she can see with her eyes, what she says is that God has dealt bitterly with me. Well, let's not be too hard on Naomi though, right? It's easy when it all comes kind of crashing in and the five verses in your life get all compact and man, all you can see is what's right there. Well, she prays that prayer. She tells him to go on. Orpah goes home. Microsoft Word keeps changing Orpah to Oprah. So it's in my notes. <laughs> I didn't do it, Microsoft did it. So if I say Oprah, I mean Orpah. <laughs> but Ruth stays. Look at verses 16 and 17. It says, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. And may the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Here's what Ruth says. 
Listen, you might pray to the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. But the blessing you're praying for can't be found where I came from. So here's what I'm doing. I'm pledging myself to you. I'm leaving all that behind. My identity, my hope, my future, and I'm pledging myself to you, Naomi. I'm all yours. And not only is she pledging herself to Naomi, she's pledging herself to Naomi's God. See, even though Naomi doesn't have the faith to trust God for her future, Ruth does. She's leaving all that she knows behind. In fact, she pledges herself. I'm never going back. I am cutting off who I was to become yours. See, Ruth believes what Naomi doesn't, and that is that Ruth believes what she can't see. Sometimes that's how faith works. See, that the God of Naomi's people, this is what she believes, the God of Naomi's people can be trusted. One writer said it this way, said, Ruth, by faith, throws herself through the veil of sight and clings by faith to Naomi and to the living God. That's what she's doing. Well, in verse 19 of chapter 1, what happens is Naomi, they, they, Naomi and Ruth, they make their way back to Bethlehem and they come into the village. Now, now, typically, you could come and go in villages nobody would make a big deal about it, but Naomi's been gone 10 years. She doesn't come back with a husband. She doesn't come back with her son. She comes back with this Moabite woman who is her daughter-in-law. And the text says in verse 19 that the, that the town was all astir and the women met her. And then it means that there was probably at the beginning a celebration. Here comes Naomi. We haven't seen her in a long time. And then they, she gets closer and they're like, Naomi, what happened to you? Years have been hard on you. She says, yeah, the, the name Naomi, Pleasant, is, it's not fitting anymore. Mara, bitterness, that's more fitting. In fact, she goes on to say in verse 21, she says this, um, I went away full, and the Lord's brought me back empty. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. I mean, it's not usually typically somebody's life verse. I mean, it's not the one we put on a the walls in our home. You know, you come in and you see somebody and that's their life first on the wall. You're like, man, it's really great to be here. I have to leave. <laughs> it's not one of those we underline and highlight and memorize and say, man, I'm clinging to that one. But for how many of us have we felt that reality? You know what? I was full. But now, I'm empty. Don't have anything. It's the way moments in our life go, isn't it? I mean, we, we, we don't know what the next moment holds because you know what the next moment is? It's the future. The next moment from now is the future. And it is so easy to live by sight, to say this is, this is what's in front of me and this is what's going to happen. And worry and distress and anxiety and disappointment and unmet expectations, those seem to loom large. You know, life used to be great. Now, I don't have anything. Maybe you've been there. So that's where Naomi is. I mean, she believes really only what she can see. And that's how she has surveyed her life. What she wasn't able to see, we're going to find out. I'll go ahead and tell you the end of the story. What she's not able to see is that her reality, what God was doing in her life, was exactly the opposite of that. Despite all she'd lost, she, she had no idea yet what she had gained. I, I was reading a couple of weeks ago about Greenland. I, I've never been there. Um, it's not on my destination tour list. 
But they were talking about in this article, um, the icebergs in Greenland are off the coast of it. And, and there's this weird thing that if you're standing there and you were observing them, um, all the icebergs look the same. But some of them, uh, some of them seem to move with the wind across the water. The wind comes, the waves come, and they move. Others of them, however, move in an opposite direction and seem to be carried along in a different direction. They're unaffected by the wind, unaffected by the waves. And they were saying that, look, when you see the icebergs, the ones that are moving with the wind, the ones that are moving with the waves, those are ones that are just sitting on top. There's nothing underneath them. It's the ones that are moving away or, or into the wind and unaffected by the waves, those are the ones that you know that down below are these, are these glaciers that are being carried along by the depths of the ocean's current. See, that's where Naomi is. She's being carried along by the wind and the waves of her life. And, and what God is doing with Naomi and what he's doing with Ruth and what he's going to do with Boaz and what he's going to do with you is he's going to draw you further than your knowledge of him and your knowledge of the circumstances and the suffering of your life. He's going to draw you further than that and then you're left with a place of what am I going to trust? What I see or the God I know and as we trust by faith the God we know and our faith deepens and we find that we have been carried along all the time by this deep current of God's sovereignty in our life. See, Ruth doesn't even know that yet. I mean, Naomi doesn't even know that yet. Her, her life is all that she can see. That's it. She's forgotten who God is. Well, life had knocked the wind out of her. There's no doubt about that. I, we don't want to be too hard on Naomi. She felt alone. I'm sure she regretted the decisions of, of her past. I, I am sure the what-if road was very easy to go down. You ever been down that road? I mean, what if we'd never left Bethlehem? What if we'd stuck it out? What if my husband had listened to me? I don't know, maybe she's didn't say that. Maybe she felt like this was God's judgment. See, what she couldn't imagine was this, that God was... Here's what God was doing. He was bringing her home. He, she'd left, but God was bringing her back. And in His sovereignty, and in His goodness, and in His grace... God was blessing her, and she didn't even know it. She couldn't even see it. And even though her faith was weak, maybe her faith was gone. I don't know. God's faithfulness never failed. God often in our life takes us further, draws us further than what we know. And we are left in the place where we live by faith, not by sight. Do you trust God for that? Well, that's where we are at the end of chapter 1. You really can't understand the rest of Ruth until you understand chapter 1. I mean, you can't just drop in somewhere. So we have to preach the whole thing of Ruth. Because that's what sets it up. That's what makes the rest of the story makes sense. Well, so in chapter 2, here's what happens. I'll just summarize it for you. In chapter 2, here, here, here's the thing. The, the narrator is going to start off in verse 1, and he's going to give you more information than the characters of the story know. He's going to tell you right up front, hey, look, in Bethlehem, there's someone that Naomi is related to, a, a, a kinsman redeemer, one named Boaz. And then that's all the narrator's going to say. And the narrator picks back up in the story in verse 2 with Ruth waking up and saying to Naomi, it's time for me to take care of you. So I'm going to go out to the fields and I'm going to glean. And what that means is so she's poor. She doesn't have anything. They, they, they own some property, but they haven't been there in 10 years. So they didn't 
plant anything. And if somebody did, it's another person's harvest. And so if you were in poverty and you didn't have anything, how you went is you went, you gleaned the corners of the fields. And so what she was doing is she was going to go out, see if she could find somebody that would find her favor. She could find favor in somebody's eyes that wouldn't harass her. I mean, it's not safe in the fields when you don't have anybody to protect you particularly when you're a foreign woman and everyone would have assumed you were a slave. And so she goes out to the field and she just happens in verse 3 upon Boaz's field. And then in verse 4, Boaz enters the scene. And you can look at it. You see what his first words are? Lord be with you. The first words of a character in the Old Testament tell us a lot about that character. And in the midst of of the dark season of the judges, Boaz shows up and he has the name of the covenant God on his lips. And in verses 5 through 7, Boaz, he notices Ruth out there. And so he inquires about her and then he discovers who she is and what her story is. And not only that, but she's worked all day long and she only had a small little rest. There's something about her, something about her character that the narrator's telling us. Listen, there's a beauty that Ruth has, but you know what? We never, we're never told what she looks like. But let me encourage you. Beauty on the outside, if that's all you have, is not real beauty. It's the depth of character that shined in Ruth's life. And Boaz says, Who is, who's that? And he finds out the story about her. We're discovering Boaz's character. We're discovering Ruth's character. And then, in verses 8 through 13, Boaz approaches Ruth and has this conversation. In 8 and 9, he says, Hey, listen, Ruth, you, you, to, when you wake up tomorrow, you don't have to go to anybody else's field. You come right back here. You always have a place here. And in fact, um, not only do you have a place here, but I've instructed my men, you're protected. Nobody's going to harass you around here. And if you're thirsty tomorrow, there's a water cooler over there. Make, you make yourself at home. Just this grace and this kindness and this compassion that he just bestows on her. And he'll say to her, hey, listen, I, I've heard about your story. You're, you're caring for your mother-in-law. You, you didn't have to do that. You, you came, you pledged yourself to her. That is a remarkable thing. But that's not why he noticed her. And we'll find out later. That's not the reason he is showing her this kindness and grace. He's, he's going to do it for another reason. But I want you to see something and I don't want you to miss it. Look in... Verse 10 of chapter 2. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? That you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. Here's what she's literally saying. Listen, I have tried to blend in. I have not wanted to draw any attention to myself. You have noticed the unnoticeable. That's what she says. And Boaz is leading us to consider someone greater than Boaz. I'll tell you this. If you think you're insignificant, you think you're unnoticeable, let me tell you something. There's, there is one whom we have come this morning to worship who notices the unnoticeable. Who finds significance in what you might believe is insignificance. Eight and nine, th those verses, the, the grace and protection of Boaz. and In verse 10, she's found favor. In verse 13, there's, there's comfort and there's kindness, undeserved. And then the last part of it, Ruth, she goes back and she returns, she, she, she brings some grain back and then she also brings leftovers of the lunch she had so that Ruth, so Naomi has something to eat and she reports Boaz's kindness. And I want you to see this, verse 20. Don't miss this, verse 20. It says this, there was a kindness and Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said, He's a close relative of ours, one of our 
redeemers. You know what that word kindness is? It's the word has said. The loving, faithful kindness. Not out of obligation. One that's grounded in love and compassion and grace. You remember in chapter 1 I said that she had prayed that God would grant her has said, but sent her back to her God's name. We said, I can't find it there. And Boaz says, you found it here under the wings of the God of Israel. Well, in chapter 3, let me, let me just say this. I, I'm not going to get into chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the threshing floor. But let me tell you, let me tell you what it is. It, it's a proposal. It's a wedding proposal that Ruth makes. Naomi because she cares about Ruth, says, listen, you need to find rest. You need to find, you need to find security. You, you need someone to care for. So here, go back to Boaz. Go to the threshing floor. Do the thing that we do here in Bethlehem that constitutes a marriage proposal. And so Ruth, trusting Naomi, says, okay, if that's what you'll have me do, that's what I'll do. So she goes back to the threshing floor. She does that. There is this interchange that happens, and Boaz says, hey, look, I can't take what's not mine. I'm not the nearest kinsman. I'm not the nearest redeemer. There's one who's closer by, as a relative than I am. I, I, I can't say yes to this proposal yet, but I, I will tell you this. If it proves that he finds out the information and won't take you as a redeemer, I will. I will. Boaz says, may, uh, yes, maybe. And in the midst of it, he says about Ruth, he says, listen, you, you're more than I thought you were. Someone like you could have married for love, could have married for money. You know what you're doing? You, you've, you've considered the proposal of a man who's older for the sake of the care of Naomi, your mother-in-law. It's an amazing thing that you've done. So Boaz responds, not out of obligation, but out of said, He goes far beyond an obligation and grants her this grace. And then we get to chapter 4. So I want you to see chapter 4. If, you, if you've lost me uh, up to this point, or I lost you, either way, come back. Chapter 4, all right? There's a bunch of bad stuff. Now we're getting to the good stuff. All right, chapter 4. Here we go. There's this thing about the other Redeemer. The narrator throws us in. We weren't expecting it. We were ready for Boaz and Ruth to go off happily ever after. There's this problem. There's this obstacle. So look in verse, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken of, this other guy who never gets named, he's Mr. So-and-so, he came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And, and then he took ten men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down here. And so they sat down. What he's doing is he's calling a business meeting at the city gate. That's where all the business transactions took place. He's got ten elders of the city, wants to make sure we have all the witnesses. And then Boaz is going to lay out the deal for him because this guy obviously hadn't heard what happened. Naomi has some land for sale. It's the land that her husband, Elimelech, owned. And she can't run it. She's an old woman. She needs to sell it to provide for her needs. And if you're the nearer kinsman, you have an opportunity to buy this land. This is what he says in verses 3 and 4. So if you'll buy it, buy it, and, then, and redeem it, redeem it. And he says, you know what? Her land's up for sale? Absolutely, I'll take it. I'll redeem it. I'll become the redeemer. I mean, who doesn't want a little more land and a little more prosperity and a little more inheritance for his children? Besides all that, Naomi's past the age of needing somebody to marry her. She can't bear children. She's probably not going to be around very long. This is a great deal for me. And then in verse 5, look at what Boaz I like Boaz, all right? I like him. He hangs this guy out to dry. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, okay. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. The, the foreign woman, that's what he means. The widow of the dead. In order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So what you thought was a benefit, let me just make real clear, in front of all these elders at the city gate, 
This isn't going to be a benefit to you. It's going to cost you something. In fact, it's, it's going to eat into your inheritance, not build your inheritance. You're going to do something sacrificial, not selfish. You're going to... Re- you're going to redeem her. You're going to provide her the way that the Leverite marriages worked from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. His, his duty would be to come to be a husband to her so she would have children. That child would end up inheriting the land. Mr. So-and-so would get nothing in the end. It would only cost him. He would gain nothing. So you know what he says in verse 6. The Redeemer said, well, I can't redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I can't redeem it. I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. It's not what I was here for. You take it. So in 7 and 8, they go through this ancient Bethlehem ritual of passing the redeemership from one person to the next. And Boaz becomes the redeemer in a public transaction, and he assumes the sacrifice of the great cost. In verse 90, he says this, I'm going to assume all the debt, all the liability I'm taking on to myself. In verse 10, he says, listen, and I'm taking Ruth the Moabite as a wife. Can you imagine how that must have sounded to her? And then in verse 11, I am guaranteeing, or verse 10, last part of verse 10, I'm guaranteeing and I'm securing their future. I am staking everything for them. Now let me tell you something. You can go back and read Leviticus. You can go back and read Deuteronomy. What Boaz is doing is technically he's acting as a kinsman redeemer, but he's going way past that. This is compassion. This is grace. This is This is love. To be a redeemer, you had to be a close relative. A member of the family had to be one that redeemed you. You had to be able to pay the required price of the redemption, which means you had to be able to cover all of the debts that would be incurred. And to be a redeemer, you had to be willing to be a redeemer. Being a redeemer was a voluntary act. Well, we finally get to the place where the narrator's been leading us. It's what I call the first ending of Ruth. So whoever the narrator of Ruth is, probably a preacher where you have two conclusions, sometimes three where the guy says, in conclusion, and in conclusion, you think he doesn't know how to land the plane. Let me show you the first conclusion. It begins in verse 13. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the woman, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who's not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of? David. Notice the reversals here. The foreigner becomes a wife. The barren conceives a child. The bitter woman, she's nourished and redeemed and restored. She's not been forgotten after all. And in verse 15, we find out she did not come back empty. It turns out that she came back full. Ruth is more valuable in the long view than everything she lost. See, God's blessing Naomi with the faithful Ruth, the foreigner. The women say, that's better than the perfect number of Jewish sons. Naomi, you didn't come back empty. You came back filled to the brim, overflowing, really. That's how you came back. So the women name the child Obed, guardian, 
provider. That's what it means. And then there's another final note. See, in verse 17, the narrator's hinted to us. He said, okay, Obed, he's, he's going to grow up, and his son is going to be Jesse. And then Jesse's going to grow up, and he's going to have a bunch of sons. But his youngest one, you know who that is? That's David, the king, the one who's in an eternal, everlasting covenant with God, and that his throne, throne will reign forever and ever and ever. See, verses 18 and 22, this comes as a second conclusion because the narrator doesn't want us to just throw the last line away. See, see what he wants to know is that, listen, this is going to come through Perez, it's going to go through Boaz, beyond Naomi and her company, to David. And then David, that's the covenant king, the one through whom God will establish his kingdom on earth. And even if David's line's full of, of a bunch of crummy kings along the way, he's promised there's going to be a righteous root that sprouts and it's going to come up through David's line and to this Jesus he will give the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom, of his kingdom there will be no end. Verses 18 through 22, you know what this tells us? That God is working his kingdom plan in Naomi's life. And you know what? The God of Naomi is the God that we serve, that we came to worship this morning. See, the fact that Boaz fathered Obed, that's just part of it. It implies that, that all of Naomi's afflictions and her troubles, that they've been caught up, and as Romans 8.28 says, they've been worked together for what one writer says, the unguessable chemistry of God's sovereign plan for his world. And that's something that Naomi couldn't see. How could God redeem her affliction and, and use it as a vehicle to further bring about God's everlasting kingdom. Listen, here's what she could see. She could see Obed. She could see the unexplainable devotion of Ruth, the Moabite. But when the author adds this Perez ending, he's showing us what Naomi couldn't see, that all of which teach us this, by the way, a little bit of caution and a little bit of wisdom. That we simply do not know enough to ultimately despair or to become completely unwitted over what we might view as senseless troubles or even over our insignificance. There's three things I think we learn from here. God's always at work, even when I can't see any evidence of that. You know that? Always. My ability to see the evidence of what God is doing does not negate one bit that God never leaves, He never forsakes, and that He is always at work. And Naomi's bitterness, she's not able to see because of it, God's graciousness and his compassion, his sufficiency. What the Lord provides Naomi in the midst of this dark time is absolute pure grace. And yet all Naomi can see, empty house, no husband, no heir, no food. But none of that prevented God from accomplishing His will because God's always at work in our lives, even if we can't see it. Here's the second thing, is that God's grace is greater than the scandal and the offense of my life. Some of you need to hear that this morning. That God's Grace is 
infinitely greater than any scandal or sin or offense of my life. One person put it this way, God loves me with the full knowledge of the worst about me and uses my mistakes even when I've stepped out of his will. Listen, there's no scandalous past that God cannot redeem for his glory and for our good. And you want to know the proof of this right out in the side? Matthew chapter 1, 3 through 6. The beginning of the New Testament opens up with the genealogy of Jesus. And you know who's there in 3 through 6? It's the same genealogy here as the end of Ruth, but we find out a couple of things we didn't know here. Not only is David's great-grandmother a Moabite woman, that would be scandalous enough. But his great-great-grandmother, meaning Boaz's mom, you know who she was? Rahab. Tamar, Rahab, the prostitute. Boaz is the son of a prostitute. And he marries a Moabite woman. And then there's Perez and his mom's Tamar. And if you want to get, have your mind blown, read Genesis 38 this afternoon. I'm not going to get into it right now. And you know what Matthew's telling us right there at the beginning? Is that this is the family of Jesus. Our kinsman, Redeemer the one who took on flesh in the incarnation, became part of our family with all our sin, all our scandal, all our shame, all of our offense. And you know what he did? He sacrificed himself. He paid the ultimate price to redeem us from all that we've lost and all that we owe. Jesus is the greater kinsman redeemer. Boaz gives us a taste. He gives us an echo of the one to come. And finally this, and I've borrowed this language. God has a perfect plan for my life and nothing can quench his determination to bless me. Did you know that? Nothing can quench his determination to bless you. Here's what God was planning to do through the griefs and the pains of Naomi's life. For Naomi, she gets a small taste of God's blessing in this life. And it's in the presence of the Lord Jesus himself that she's going to get to feast on the fullness of that blessing. Listen, here's, here's what God was doing. The, the real secret purpose of what God was doing and what he was working out in Naomi's darkness and Naomi's sorry, sorrow, he was bringing Ruth into the kingdom of God. He was bringing Ruth to Boaz. He was bringing Obed to birth. He was bringing David to the throne and ultimately to bring King David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ to a manger in Bethlehem to a cross at Calvary and to the throne of glory at the right hand of God as the great kinsman, redeemer, and savior for you. That's what God was doing. And the baby that lay in Naomi's arms, it was a pledge, a token, a first fruit of the salvation that would eventually be found exclusively in Jesus. It's always God's way. Every blessing we receive in this life, it's not meant to fully compensate for the sufferings of your life. It's not fully meant, these blessings of God in our life, to cancel out all the reality of living in a fallen world. But they're tokens, they're pledges, they're first fruits of eternal blessings found in the ultimate kinsman, redeemer, Jesus Christ, when the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised to life and the saints are transformed into glory forever and ever. Eternal kindness, infinite love, forever rest. That's what we learn. Isn't that great? Maybe you feel like your life is chapter one of Ruth. But let me tell you something, God is working right now in ways that if you can't see, you can trust. So I want to invite you to do that. Listen, how, how, do, you, how do you know, how are you redeemed by the ultimate kinsman, redeemer? You believe in him. You trust him with your life. I'm not going back to Moab. Not, I'm not looking over there. 
For the blessings that only God can provide, I am coming to his son Jesus for my salvation and my redemption. That, that right there is all you have to do. You don't have to clean up your act. He pays your debt. You can't. That's what makes him the redeemer. So if you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. We have this great opportunity as you're bowing and preparing your hearts. We are going to celebrate baptism. We did it in the first hour. It was amazing. We're going to do it this second hour as we have some folks that are going to enter into the water. They're going to go under. They're going to come out. They're going to identify with what Jesus has already done to redeem them in their life. To say, yes, Jesus is my redeemer. He is my savior. I am a child of God in the name of Christ. That's what we are going to celebrate. I pray this morning that as you see this, if you have not come to that reality, you haven't come to that faith in Jesus, I pray that you'd see this and the Holy Spirit would do what only the Holy Spirit can do to draw you to the Son. Father, I pray you'd do that. I thank you for the story of Ruth. I thank you, not just for Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Our goal is not to be like them. Our goal is to see your Son, Jesus, the ultimate kinsman redeemer. Father, draw us to him. We pray this the only way we can, that is in the name of Jesus, who is seated at your right hand, who awaits to return, to raise the dead, and to transform the saints. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, we ask. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.